Well, this morning, this morning as we begin, first of all, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm excited this morning. I, I'm excited every morning. I, I, that's just a, a, a normal thing for me. But especially this morning because this is something that I've been wanting to happen for a while and felt not led to do that during the latter part of the ministry of Matthew. So you remember the last person who shared in this class during Matthew was Andy Thaxon when he shared the trials of Jesus. And then after that point, I did all the rest. I just felt that was a move of the Holy Spirit, unique, you know, whatever. But this morning, we uh, are going to be hearing from one of our own, David Batten, wherever David is. I know he's in here somewhere. There he is over there. Uh, He's going to be sharing from time to time the teaching. Andy Thaxton will be sharing from time to time the teaching. And then I'll be sharing from time to time the teaching. Uh, Please do not allow the enemy to do this to you. If it's not so-and-so, I really don't want to be there. Never put the word of God on the level of the vessel or the flesh. Always put the word of God on the level of the Holy Spirit, whom he will use, how he will use. Okay, each one of us is very different in our presentation. So make no judgments about whether he does this and he doesn't do that and the other. Make the judgment concerning is the Holy Spirit speaking to me this morning. That's the only judgment we care for any one of us to be making. And so we're excited about this. And David will be coming up and sharing this morning and next week. And then, uh, yes, okay, I will be doing the week after that if you need to know. So whatever. But we will be from time to time uh, sharing the, the ministry here. The three of us, basically, David, Andy. Why don't you raise your hand, Andy, so they'll know. Andy's the guy back there trying to grow a beard. And, uh, well... In order to follow this, you have to have a beard, you see. And uh, so come on up and welcome. Let's welcome David Batten. I didn't realize having a beard was a qualification for our teaching. (laughs) Um, I just want to start off. I'm um, honored to be up here. Um, I'm I'm a little surprised to be up here today, actually, Um, and not just honored because when Peter said that he was going to do the three omni attributes and then I was going to be up the week after that, I thought, what are the chances he gets through that in three weeks? And the the wind blows where it wills because he did. Um, (laughs) No, but okay, so I said something, joke, I got to say something nice, he'll hate this, but um, I've really enjoyed um, working and serving with Peter over the years. I think the thing I'm most encouraged and instructed by as I work with him is just the way that he cares for the people that he's serving. I know you all have experienced that. I'm not telling you anything new, but just to say from up front, the, the way he cares for people um, I think is great and something that I, I want to emulate just in the way that I um, even teach this morning. So um, I'm really excited for the topic this morning. I'm going to be talking about God's immutability. Um, and I'm excited for that because I, I personally had a lot of questions in this category last year. And what I found through some study Um, not only helped my understanding of God, but really helped my joy in Him. Um, And I hope that, I know this can be a a challenging topic a little bit, just to understand what is meant. Um, Anytime the finite try to understand the infinite God, it's a challenging thing to understand. But I hope you walk out of here this morning, not just understanding what immutability even means, but uh, with your joy in God, 
um, grown, your affection for him strengthened. Um, that said, I will say I'm, I'm expect I'm not going to answer any question or every question you might have about immutability. This is a big topic, um, and I probably don't have enough time or the ability to answer every question that you might have, especially those of you who like to kind of dig into um, the depth of theology. Um, but I would just encourage you to be, um, if you walk out of here with some questions, continue to ask those questions, ask people in this room the questions that you have. I think those should be normal conversations that we're having with one another, what we're learning and the questions we have about God. Um, if I say anything that seems confusing or you have questions for me, I'd be happy to talk more with you after. I know Peter would as well. Um, so just to encourage you to, to keep studying after this, keep searching if you walk out of here with um, questions such as. Um, okay, so let's get into immutability. What is immutability? There's a definition of immutability would be that God does not change. And specifically, people will talk about that God does not change in his character or what he is like. God does not change in his plan or his purposes for um, what he will be doing. And God does not change in his promises. What he has said he will do for his people, his promises do not change. I'm really trying to describe there what we find in the Bible in passages such as Malachi 3.6, where he says, probably one of the clearest statements on immutability, I, the Lord, do not change. Um, or maybe a little longer description of that would be Psalm 102.25-27. says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. What God is like, his person, his character, his attributes, they don't change. Like anything around you, you might see that it's changing. He's comparing to his creation. You see all these things changing around you, all the things you might rely on. But God is not changing in his character, and his attributes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or Psalm thirty-three, eleven. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generation. Right? His purposes don't change. Again, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. We'll get into a little more about, about how does that work in some specific scenarios where you might say, well, does God never change his mind? Does he never change his plan? I realize if you're going to have questions about immutability, that may be where your questions come from. Um, but just see here in these passages, it's clear saying, I declare the end from the beginning. My purposes do not change. They will stand. I will accomplish what I set out to do. That's what it's saying. And then finally, his promises. You might look at James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Right? God gives gifts, and those gifts are good, and you can trust those gifts. Why? Because God does not change. He does not change, and so he will continue to give gifts as he has promised. And that kind of gives you an idea of how we're going to connect this. We've been seeing all of these attributes in light of God's love. How do we understand God's love relative to all of his other characteristics? This is a clue to how we're going to see it in immutability. His gifts don't change because he doesn't change. 
God's love is one of those attributes that doesn't change. The way God has loved you is certain. It won't change. Why? Because God does not change. His love for you doesn't change, not because of you, but because of him. Immutability is also implied by God's aseity. If you want to connect it to some of the other attributes we've been seeing, because God is from himself, right? He's he's self-existent. There's nothing outside of him that he's dependent on. Nothing outside of him has the ability to change the God who is from himself. Unlike us who are built on the relationships and uh, the way we've been formed and and kind of we are defined a lot by our relationships to lots of other things, God is defined simply by himself. And so he does not change because that's all he is. He's, I, I am that I am. I'm the Alpha and Omega. I just, I am. That's how he describes himself. Now, as we're talking about immutability, one, one way you might, um, a, a couple clarifications on this. What people have talked about immutability not to say that because God doesn't change doesn't mean that he can't do different things at different times. They'll, they'll sort of say God's immutability does not make him immobile as he relates to people. Right? So God's immutability does not mean that he can't relate to Cain and Abel differently when they bring him different sacrifices. It doesn't mean he can't uh, heal someone one time and not heal them another time. He's not constrained by his immutability as he acts with people. And there's some mystery around this, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29 is going to apply. Anytime the infinite inserts himself into finite places, you may have difficulty understanding exactly how wrapping your head around all that works there. Um, But we don't want to understand anything about immutability to mean that God is limited or constrained or forced to act a certain way at a certain time. Right? He still has the ability to choose and to do this or to do that. Um, he's not immobile, even though when he does A instead of B, it doesn't mean that he in himself has changed in some way. Another way that, that I, th- I think might be confusing is if you try to understand immutability or unchangingness relative to, to people who you know of that are unchanging, right? If you think of maybe a, an old man who's sort of set in his ways, right? He's just lived his life this way so long that, um, that he's now set. He's not going to change. He lives... <laughs> no specific examples of an old man there, but... Um, He's lived this way so long that now he's unwilling to change. He's sort of cold and static and, and maybe a little bit distant. That's not a good picture of immutability. If, you, if that's what you're thinking of when you're thinking of God as immutable, you're, you're going to misunderstand this. A, a better way probably to understand immutability would be to think of something like the sun, which is so full of all that it is that nothing can change it now. It's not cold, it's not distant, it's not set. It already has everything that it could ever have. My news feed this last year was sort of filled with, uh, for some reason, stories about potentially killer asteroids and the chance that, that Elon Musk is worried that we're going to eventually have an asteroid come and hit the Earth and destroy everything. And um, So I'd get an article every time one came within like 1.7 million miles of Earth. Right, so, you know, if an asteroid hits the Earth, it's going to be devastating. What if that asteroid hits the sun? Well, pretty much all of them would just burn up before they even get there. 
Right? Nothing about those asteroids can change anything about the sun because it's so full of what it is. That's a better picture of immutability. God is so full of himself. He's so full of his joy. He's so full of his goodness. He's so full of beauty and righteousness and holiness and love that nothing can change him now. He's not cold or distant or static. He's just already got everything that could ever be contained. And now nothing outside of him can change him. I think that's a better picture to understand why God is immutable. How do we understand him? How do we relate to his immutability? It's to see it as his fullness. Okay, a couple challenges to immutability, though. You might be asking, okay, I I see the passages you're saying. I see what you're talking about. But what about the stories in the Bible where it does seem like God changes his mind? Right, you might be thinking of uh, his description right before the flood story, where he says he regrets, Genesis 6, 6, I regret that I made mankind. Right, did, did, he, did he change his, has he changed his perspective on what he should have done there? Exodus thirty two fourteen, where he's um, had this interaction with the people of Israel. He's brought them out, and now they've worshipped this golden calf. And he's, he tells Moses, I'm going to destroy these people, but Moses prays, and then it says... And the Lord relented from the disorder. Did, did Moses change God's mind there? Did his purposes change? 1 Samuel 15, 11, talking about Saul, who's also made a sacrifice that he was not, not appropriate for the king to make because he was afraid of the enemy and afraid of his people, and Samuel was late. And so God says in 1 Samuel 15, 11, I regret that I have made Saul king. Do we under, does this need to change our understanding of immutability? Does he change his mind in these stories? The first thing I would observe here is you, you've actually just come to a, a challenge in the Bible. There's, there's difficulty in understanding this. You're, you're not going to get a real quick, simple answer. right? Because either you're going to have to say, all those other verses I just read about God's purposes don't change. And say, well, maybe those we need to tweak our understanding of that. Or you've got to come to these passages and say, maybe we've got to tweak our understanding of that. But there seems to be a tension here. It's, not, it's going to take some more thought, some more work to figure out exactly what's going on. The second thing I would say is, is when you come to tensions like that in the Bible, one thing that's generally helpful is to read the Bible literately. To, to read it and understand, what is this doing here? What is, what is the author really saying? I don't just need to take this as a wooden, not, nobody wrote or intended this, right? The, we use language in different ways, right? If, if you're child comes to you and says, if my sister takes my Lego set, I'm, I'm going to kill her. You're not going to call the police, right? You, you know what he means. He doesn't mean I'm going to kill her. That's an idiom, right? We, we use language in different ways, different times. And sometimes understanding the way that the author is using language can help us unravel some of these tensions. I would say that 1 Samuel 15, 11 is a good example of this. Because in 1 Samuel 15, 11, God says that he regrets making Saul king. But if you read on to verse 29, they're quoting numbers, and the author says, And also the glory of Israel, he's referring to God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Right? Verse 11, God regrets. Verse 29, God does not regret. What's going? Did the author just make a mistake there? No, I don't think so. 
what, what else can we understand that to mean? What, what's the idea he's trying to convey in that story? And I, um, you might have different versions there. If you have the NIV, I think it says change his mind or, or relent, but, but you get it. it. It's kind of, did God change his mind in that passage? Well, I think it's maybe something like this. He's expressing the feeling of that moment. Imagine if, you're, if your mom, because you, something that's just happened, um, maybe you, you've really disappointed her some way, you decided not to go to med school and that was her plan for you all along, or um, something else has happened to, to disrupt your relationship, and she says to you, I wish you'd never been born. I regret that you were ever born. What you don't understand her to mean is that she's saying, well, I, I took out this list and I made a pro list and a con list, and I thought it all through, and if I had it all to do over again, we would just have not had you. Right? That's, that's not what she's saying. If I had it over to do again, I've decided I wouldn't do it again. No, she's saying, this is how I feel in this moment. It's this bad. And it's like a punch in the stomach. That's how she's using that language. And I would say that's what God is doing in 1 Samuel 15, 11. He's saying, this moment is this bad. What Saul just did is this bad. In this moment, it would, it's like it would have been better if he was never king. Now, don't get me wrong. Verse 29, he's saying, it's not that I've changed my mind. It's not that my purposes are being thwarted here. I'm just explaining to you how this moment feels. I think if you go to the Noah story, the flood, I think you find the same thing. I don't think that's a story where God, who's sort of flip-flopping, says, oh, no, I've made a huge mistake now. I should have never made these people. You could read it that way, but I don't think that's what's intended. I think what he's saying is this moment is this bad that it, says it would have almost like been better if I had never done this. And yet you notice he doesn't wipe everyone out. He saves Noah. And then Noah makes a mistake right after that. Did, was that a surprise too? Should he not have saved him? No, I don't think so. I think what you should read in that story is to say that God says it's this bad and yet he doesn't destroy everyone. On display, in contrast to the regret of that moment is the love of a long-suffering God. And we should understand it's this bad, and yet the story continues. God's love is on display there, contrasted to the difficulty of that moment. He didn't change there, and we learn something about him because of that. The, The final response I would give to sort of understanding how do we understand these, this language about regretting and relenting um, is, that, is that when God acts in time, you, it's, it's sometimes helpful to think of him both as sort of the author and a character in the story. Right? He's simultaneously the author who's infinitely outside working everything to his purpose that he's declared from the beginning, and he's a character in that story interacting in real ways, working towards the end he's intended, but, but with real interactions with people in the story. Right, so an example of this might be, um, it, if I would, the other day I was working with my son who, who has this, he'll just kind of get stuck sometimes. Right? He'll get really focused on the one way he thought something was going to go, and then no matter whatever happens, that it's like his brain is shut off, and he's just stuck on whatever that one thing he wanted to happen the way, and it didn't. Um, and so he was just kind of in one of those moments, and I, and I needed to get him out of it. I needed to, to switch this thing back on. And so I said, Oliver, if you, if you 
can't have self-control right now and choose to do, I don't even remember what the conflict was. It was not a big deal. Um, if you can't have self-control right now, I'm going to have to take away one of your Lego sets. Now, I did not want to take away one of his Lego sets. That was a fight I was not ready for. <laughs> but that wasn't my purpose. My purpose was to get his brain working on. And I knew Lego sets was a valuable thing enough to him that he was going to start thinking again. And he did. He, he was able to kind of pull it together and we salvaged the night for everyone. Um, <laughs> because I knew, I knew that was going to work. I acted in a way, I played a role that needed to get to what my real purpose was. And if you look at the story with Moses, particularly Exodus 32, I think that's exactly what God is doing. He's playing a role to get to the end he's always wanted. Right? He's, he's talking to Moses, telling him, I'm going to destroy these people. And Moses responds because he, God knew Moses was going to respond that way. And why do I think that that's the best way to read the story? Well, look at the picture you get at the end. You've got on one side the people and their sin is so obvious. On the other side, you've got God and his righteousness and his wrath and, um, that needs to be uh, meted out for justice. And in the middle, you've got a man interceding on behalf of the people before God. And because of this intercessor, God's wrath is averted. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That's a picture of the gospel. That's a foreshadowing of what God is going to do one day in Christ. I think that picture is what God wanted all along so that when we get to Jesus, we look back and say, oh, it's like that. That was his intention, to display the particular shape of God's love for his people as grace coming through a mediator on behalf of the people. God didn't change his mind. He demonstrated the way he loves people. So we would begin to see over and over again, this is how I do it. Now, what if Moses hadn't prayed? This may be your question. What what if Moses hadn't prayed? Because, Because we want to know, I think, really, does it matter if I pray? Right? If God's going to work to his end... What is, does it matter that Moses was there? Does it matter that I pray for whatever thing it is you want to pray about? Well, let me give you a confusing answer. <laughs> yes and no. In the one sense, does it matter that Moses prayed? Yes. Yes, it did. I think if Moses had not prayed in that moment, the, the picture is gone. There's no intercessor. And we know what happens when there's no intercessor. You get to Ezekiel Twenty-two thirty, and and God says that He looks for someone to stand in the gap, and because there's no one, that's why judgment ultimately comes to the people of Israel. If there's no one in the gap, if there's no intercessor, if there's no one praying, the people are wiped out. Does it matter that Moses prays? Yes. And at the same time, is God's plan to love His people, to keep His promise to Abraham? Dependent on Moses? No. No, it's not. How does that work? Well, I told you I wasn't going to answer every question. (laughs) Does it matter that you pray about whatever specific thing you're praying about? Yes, it does. And is God's love and purposes for the person or the situation that you're praying for dependent on you? 
No, it's not. Both of those things are true at the same time. And there's mystery here. But it's also a pretty good picture, isn't it? The story we get in Exodus 32, where we see God working through specific circumstances to accomplish his definite end that matters when people interact and also shows it's always been dependent on him. That's a good picture. It's a confusing picture, but it's really good. And that's really what I want to see in immutability, is that, that God's immutability is often demonstrated in Scripture to show that we can rely on God. That the confidence of God's people is dependent on Him. If you read on in those two verses I quoted, Psalm 102 and Malachi 3.6, actually stopped a little bit short just to describe the immutability part, but if you see why the author is explaining those passages, Psalm 102 25 through 27 is talking about that all of creation will pass away, but God will remain. You remain the same and your years never end. And then the final verse in that Psalm is this, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Why is he talking about the fact that God never changes? So the people reading the Psalm would know not only you, but your children can have confidence because God does not change. You can look, all these things around you can be changing. Whatever you thought was going to be securing your future can be gone, wiped away. You can be dealing with any situation. And here's your confidence. God does not change like all these things around you. And because God does not change, you and your children will dwell secure. Malachi 3.6, if you remember the context of Malachi This is the returned exiles who've come back to the land and um, they are actually, they've begun to build the temple but they haven't really been that faithful lately. Everyone remembers Malachi 3.10 because it's the passage to talk about tithe um, but it's talking about tithes, bringing the tithes into the storehouse because the people were not bringing the tithes into the storehouse. Malachi has come to sort of judge and reprimand and rebuke the people. And in the middle of this Um, reminder of who God is and rebuke for their actions, we get Malachi 3.6, which says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Why are you not consumed? Because you've been doing the right thing? No, you have not been doing the right thing. You have not been faithful. But you are not consumed because I don't change. That's what God is saying. You haven't kept your promises. I keep my promises. Your security isn't dependent on even you being faithful. It's dependent on me. And that's, that's what I think we need to take from immutability. That the picture we take, whatever, think of your, promi- your favorite Bible verse, your favorite promise in the Bible. Maybe it's, um, I will always be with you to the end of the age, Matthew 28. Maybe it's that God will complete the work in you, Philippians 1.6. Maybe it's that he works all things for the good of his people, Romans 8.28. Whatever it is, whatever your favorite promise in the Bible is, why can you trust that promise? Why do the words written 2,000 or more years ago to people that you've never met still apply to you? Because God does not change. 
Because he said he would do it then and it is no different today. Nothing about that has changed. As I was thinking about this, I think the Spirit showed me this parable in light I'd never seen it before. But the, picture, the parable of the prodigal son is, I think, a picture of God's immutability. Because what do we get? At the end of that story, when the son has left, has, has taken all of the portion of the family's wealth and run off and squandered it, disrespected and broken the relationships with his father, what do you get at the end of that? You get a father whose love for his son is no different than on the day he left. His love has not changed even a bit. And that's the way that God loves us. God's love is immutable. It does not change. It will not change. Your experience of God's love might change. Right? The son's experience of, God, of his father's love was different when he was off in a foreign land or when he came back. Right? I don't know what you've walked in this morning or where you, what experience of God's love you've had. You, you can leave God's love. Right? You, you can take yourself away from the experience of it. Storms and clouds may happen and it may feel different, but the fact of God's love never changes. The sun is there whether you go hide in a cave, whether there are storm clouds, it's there. It's no different. It doesn't change. This is a frequent comfort to me as, as I think about how do I know that into the future that my salvation will be the same. That, that I'm going to continue to be faithful. Right? In moments where I feel that I've failed or I've sinned or I've, I've just realized how ridiculous I am, how do I know that, that the course of my life is going to turn out okay? It's, it's not me. It's God who doesn't change. The God who has been faithful to me, who is faithful to me today, is going to continue to be faithful to me. He, nothing about him is ever going to change. That's the way that we should see immutability. I think when you understand this truth, you learn to love things like Psalm 136. Which if you're reading Psalm 136 in your, your Bible reading plan, you get to it, you might kind of be like, okay, well, let's, I got the point. Why do we need so many verses on this? So every second verse in that is the same line. It just says, for the steadfast love, his steadfast love endures forever. It's just a bunch of thoughts collected. It's the story of Israel all connected to the idea that his steadfast love endures forever. But do you see why that truth is worth repeating over and over and over and over again? That's our confidence. His love does not change. And I hope as you think of this truth, you will walk out um, sort of humming the song that, that this is every time I finish going through these thoughts, I end up humming the song that, that comes from this passage. Verse 12 in Psalm 136 might sound familiar if you've sung songs here for a long time. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. That's the tune of this truth. I hope you walk out singing that tune and reminding yourself that your future is not dependent on anything else around you. It's dependent on only one thing, 
the God who does not change. His promises for you, his love for you is the same. Nothing you ever do, nothing you just did, nothing in your past, nothing you might do tomorrow, none of those things can ever change this fact. God's love endures forever. Thanks.